Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. It is Friday, probably Friday when we publish this, it's almost Friday, episode 75, 22nd of March 2019, and uh, another week's gone by, Mark, although it seems longer than a week um, that we spoke, that's because it probably is, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, um, some weeks go quick and some weeks go slow, and it always seems a Gee, it seems so long before, but, but between takes, Mark, I, I just haven't spoken to you for so long. I just, uh, I just we need to catch up. It is, and it's a very good habit for us to get into, Brendan. It's like it's sort of like counselling or debriefing. It's a, it's a, it helps me. It is my de-stress for the week, or one of my de-stresses <laughs> for the week. That's for sure, Mark. Um, chatting to you and and getting all my frustrations. Off my chest, Mark. And um, speaking of frustrations, I, I must um, I must tell you that I that I paid a little visit to a, an embassy. Um, I won't say which one because I don't want to moz myself. I, uh, you because don't. I, yeah, they'll be listening. I think you know, I, they'll be listening. They will be. I um, spend a bit of time at an, an, a small amount of time at an embassy um, gathering. Well, I'm in the stages of, of getting a visa, Mark, as you well know, for for a visit, which um, if it's successful, which we will know next week, Mark, um, um, I will um, fill in our listeners um, some more detail about the trip. And, um, yeah, it was a little bit scary, Mark. Um, um, some some people are, are scary, aren't they? They um, they put on their official official face and the official stare or glare at you, which this person did to me. And um, I was shaking in my shoes, Mark. Um, I didn't have any boots on, but I was certainly shaking in my shoes. And um, they now have my passport because um, – that's what they do um, with this embassy in order to get a visa. I've left my passport with them and hopefully um, I'll get it back. <laughs> and um, I had all my forms filled out. Well, I thought, I thought I had all my forms filled out correctly because I knew it would be very formal, this application. I had my introduction letter from the veterinary um, friends that are um, um, supporting me for the trip, um, for the teaching trip and um, various other forms and I'd print it off and sign the official form and I'd get and I'd um, had some passport photos taken, some extra ones and and um, they require different types of passport photos than, than the standard as well. <laughs> um, um, it was just, yeah, quite... Um, Quite interesting, and um, yeah, I, I, I passed over all my forms through the through the bars, Mark, um, to the person who was um, looking after me at at, um, at um, window number four, and uh, then she um, looked me in the aisle and gave me a steely look and said, uh, "Where's a copy of your passport page with your photograph on there?" And I'd just given her the passport, and. I did actually take one, um, a photocopy of it or, or a copy of it, but I left it at home, Mark. So I thought, oh, my goodness me. And I was in the one-hour parking slot in the city where this um, 
embassies. And um, she gave me a steely look and said, I need a photocopy of your information page of your passport. And I said, well, sorry, I think I've left it at home. And she just lifted a finger, (laughs) not the middle finger. She lifted a finger and pointed um, behind me. And in the corner there I could see um, a photocopy machine, a fax, um, and probably half a dozen people frantically photocopying their passports <laughs> because they must have been at other windows and told to head over there and um, photocopy their passport. And I, and I looked in my wallet and felt my pockets and I realised I didn't have any loose change. And I said to her, um, excuse me, um, how much is it? And she said, 20 cents. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any loose change. I've got, I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got a five dollars, or I've got a fifty dollar note. And she just looked at me blankly, and we both <laughs> paused, and nobody said anything. And then she said, "This time, I do it for you. Next time, I will not do it for you." And she took my passport and walked over to a machine she had sitting next to her and um, photocopied it there. So, um, yeah, so she... um, That's awesome. um, But um, and I still felt guilty about it, yeah, because she made me feel like a little schoolboy. Make sure you take take that 20 cents next when you get a pick. Yeah, I should. I should give it to her. I think think it's a different person who takes the money when you get your visa and um, go back. I'll go back next week. But, yes, um, I was feeling very, very um, sheepish and and very... um, very um, admonished, Mark. Um, it was it was an experience. So anyway, um, more on this story next week. So that's what I've been up to. That's my trauma for the week so far. Although so, although it looks like uh, my visa, you know, she didn't see any obvious problems with it, and I'm hoping it will go through. And I'm very much looking forward to visiting this country and and having a bit of a look around, which we'll talk about next week. Did they um did did she do the typical border? Um, control officer, look down at your passport, look up with, look you in the eye, look back down at your passport, look up at you again. Yeah, well, only yeah, only once. Um, she she did do it. Um, the sort of formal, you know, um, very firm crossing and ticking on the form and and, and circling things and you know um, and 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 stabbing at the uh, stabbing at the forms that I'd filled in. Yeah, so um, very. Very officious, very official, but um, you know, um, uh, it's going to be I expect awesome that, I, I expect announcing it next week, Brendan. Yes, and I and I expect they they deal with some real idiots, um, perhaps like me, um, every single day of their life. So um, you know, I don't I don't um, Envy them, Mark, um, doing that sort of job. Yeah. So, anyway, what have you been up to? Enough about well, me. Well, I've got, I've, I took a tip from you. I took a tip from you in that I was doing a bit of driving down to a few meetings in Sydney, and uh, and I don't get particularly good radio reception, so I I like listening to podcasts. Surprisingly enough, and um, and so I did uh, take a tip from you and listen to a particular podcast. But Brendan, I've got to say. I'm, I was pretty disappointed with the uh, with that podcast. I think, um, well, I think they have hugely more resources, and it wasn't even as good as ours. Um, Do you know which one I'm talking fo- about? Follow up one we spoke about. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I'm happy to tell to, to make the announcement that um, who the hell is Amish? Hamish is um. Well, we already know 
um, we have a Hamish that we already know, but this is a different Hamish. Um, and uh, I don't know, it was just a little bit flat. It didn't have the same. You would have thought there's, you know, deception and uh, con men and, and millions of dollars and and uh, and broken hearts and flaunted love. And um, Well, there is a bit of that. Was Are you up to date with it? Are you up to date with the latest? I did. I think I have got up to. It's up to. Is it up to five? Episode five? Is that the latest? It's around about that. Yes. Yes. I'm enjoying it, and um, yeah, I'm probably not as disappointed as you, Mark. So um, I just thought, Brendan, I thought it was a bunch of rich people trying to get on the get rich quick, you know, some scam, and then when it goes to crap, they have a big whinge about it. I lost a lot of money with that guy, <laughs> Mark. <laughs> No, I, I yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it, but yeah, I I, I see your point, but um, I probably disagree. Um, to a extent, I'm, I, I'm enjoying it probably more than you are. It sounds like you are very disappointed. So I'm sorry that I've given. No, you no, no. I think steer there. I think mark. it's a really good, um, a really good thing that there. Sometimes I think with our podcast, Brendan, there is such um, symmetry. I think it's sometimes good for us to point out that we do actually have slightly different tastes. Um, and we're not just uh, twins in different cities. Yes, or the same person. Oh, yes, yeah, exactly. Yes, uh, with 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 voice um, dubbing over with different voices. Yes. Um, ah, okay. Yes, I thought you were going to say you were stopping um, as you were driving around and taking some photos in the country. Um, 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 when I when I went to the city, I, I took the old film camera, Mark, and I did take a few pics around the Yarra river um here in melbourne so i'm looking forward to developing those mark um so and, and um, I've, I've i'll been, get a couple of good ones yeah i've been having a little bit of um uh um photo taking withdrawal i haven't had a chance to get the uh, camera out and and um take some images so i'm looking forward a couple of weekends from now i've got a bit of a scheduled workshop so hopefully that'll be that'll um fulfill my um desire to to uh, paste down images of the world excellent well i'm going to jump into a, a, a quick news story mark because it's a very quick one this one and it's from the vn online which is the journal veterinary practice online and it is um Owners are urged to vaccinate rabbits after a HDV2 outbreak in the UK. And I know we've spoken um, briefly about this um, potential um, episodes happening in the UK previously. So the rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus variant 2, Mark. Um, so rabbit owners have been urged to vaccinate their pets against rabbit hemorrhagic disease variant 2 after six animals died of the virus at an animal rescue centre in Lancashire in the UK. And, um, yeah, one of the rabbits at the charity died and two days later one more died and hemorrhaged from its rectum, which raised suspicions. And then they did a post-mortem. Um, gee, um we were talking about hemorrhaging from rectums, weren't we, um, just before here about um, one of my relatives, but we won't go into that um, because that's a bit, a little bit too close to, to too close to my um, 
rectum um, too close to my heart. It wasn't me, I must admit, but, um, yeah, it was my mum, wasn't it? My mother has been having some health problems, but we won't go off on a tangent <laughs> with that. I, so, I don't know how to uh, rein you in. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm on a bit of a roll tonight, aren't I? Um, so, yeah, RHDV2 is a silent killer, as they mention in the article, and can be very distressing for owners. Well, obviously, because their rabbits are dying, um, who find their pets have died suddenly for no apparent reason. It's extremely important rabbit owners have their pets vaccinated annually against RHV, RVHD and myxomatosis before a second vaccination to combat RVHD too. So, yeah, I just wanted to raise that in that, um, you know, we're, we are still seeing the variant 2 here in Australia, um, but I think it's dampening down and we're seeing less of it. So um, although the virologists in Canberra marker. I think there's another variant um, that's on the loose um, because um, a few samples have been sent where they've tested for the current variants and they're negative, but they're pretty sure it is a it is a viral cause and similar hemorrhagic sort of disease signs, Mark. So, Brendan, I have a bit of a question for you that comes out of that article. The Silap vaccine, the one that's distributed by Zoetis here in Australia, Yes, it has a in its registration in the little package insert. Um, it has an instruction that it's to be that the contents of the vaccine are to be used within ten hours of its um of the bottle being breached, um, and that's not a thing that we do for a, a very scientific reason. I will explain in a moment. We tend to use that we date them and use them for four weeks and don't use them past that. We've had no problem with the vaccines working but we have had a lot of questions lately from other vets who worry about um about using the vaccine beyond that uh, 10 hour period i was wondering what your practice did very similar mark and i think we did a little survey with some of the vet, rabbit vets here in australia um regarding that vaccine and the, and the recommendations on the product insert there and and the question was how many people discarded after year eight or 12 hours and uh, basically it was nobody um, and most people just kept using the vaccine until um, the 10 um, injections were used up so a majority of them it would be within several weeks like um, you mentioned with with you and and I think the bottom line is that yeah um, the people who are vaccinating lots of rabbits um, haven't noticed anecdotally any any obvious breakdown with um with using that protocol with them. So we're still keeping it in the fridge and um, using it within within several weeks. Um, and I think it goes back, there was a little bit of um, backstory to that, Mark, in that in the original insert, and they haven't, as far as I know, they haven't changed the formulation at all, but um, they just got a bit stricter with what they recommended as far as the regulatory authorities about um, what to do with it. Um, so the original insert, I think, just said use as... as, as um, Something, something along the lines as use use up as 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 quickly as practical um, with it, um, rather than a specific date or timing with it. So, and my uh, understanding is exactly the same as yours, Brendan. That um, that yeah. the recommendation is made on the basis that there is no there's no testing to say how long it will last. But there's every reason yeah. with a killed vaccine um, that has thiomasol, the preservative in it, um, as long as you practice routine hygiene and stick it in the fridge, there's no scientific reason to assume that it's going to break down and not be functional. Yeah, and we were, we were certainly using it when we're getting outbreaks <clears throat> of, of 
you know, the original Khaleesi and, and the Khaleesi variant too that we think provides some protection with and, um, you know, the, 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 the vast majority of rabbits that were up to date um, with the vaccinations um, were, were much, much less likely to, to develop um, the infections yeah. Yeah. Um, if they're exposed to it. So, yeah, that's the, that's the answer. And I, and I think, um, yeah, we did do a little survey in our group and, and I think virtually everyone were in the same boat as what they recommended. So tricky because you have a recommendation on a product insert and um, it's a bit like the off-label use of medications in exotics. It's a lot like that. And, and I think the same general rules apply, Brendan, that um, we're, the, we're the ones who are delivering it and if we can defend in science the practice we use, um, then we're certainly legally allowed to vary the prescribing um instructions um you know we're, we're not tied to uh, those registration details necessarily um and there are lots of medications where um you know over time the the um, standard of practice use of those things and syntocin for example oxytocin is one that leaps out um the the use changes from the registered uh um dosage for example and uh and things move on and sometimes the drug companies you know, don't necessarily follow suit. So, yeah, I think it's perfectly fine for us to choose to use it as long as we can defend it, Brendan. Yes. So excellent, excellent comment, Mark. Interjection there. Um, exactly. Exactly. You're on the ball tonight. <laughs> You're absolutely on the ball. So what's your first news um, I was going to talk about, um, it's a little, um, it's an article from, uh, I don't know where it's come from, Um but it's an article about uh, Australia's native animals, the, particularly those small um, native mammals, the ones that are, you know, roughly the size of a, a rabbit, the betongs and bilbies and whatnot. They've obviously been devastated by the introduction of foreign animals, um, particularly foxes and especially feral cats. Um, but there's a, a pretty cool... Um, place in South Australia, the Arid Recovery um, uh, Facility, where um, they've uh, fenced off an outback reserve near Roxby Downs, um, 123 square kilometres, and they've uh, successfully reintroduced uh, four, I think they're up to, they're looking at the fifth species to be introduced there. Um, unfortunately, um, it does, so the whole you know, the whole idea of rewilding, a, a bit of a marketing term if you ask me, but the whole idea is to um, to take uh, uh, animals from maybe island populations or other populations and return them to their natural habitat. Um, and it would be great um, if... Uh, these populations could become established in for, in a fenced area, for example, and then, you know, radiate out from there. But sadly, um, in the case of the burrowing betongs and bilbies, um, and all the ones that were released outside the predator-proof fence were killed by cats generally within, well, well within two years of their release. So that's a real problem. And this article talks about a potential solution. So the idea is to um, take advantage of a plant known as uh, gastrolobium. And gastrolobium uh, um, fruit is a very um, 
you know, a pop, it's a well-consumed fruit in the wild, um, and it contains a tr- trace of sodium fluoroacetate, which is um, the reason that many of these animals um, are more resistant to 1080 um, than our domestic animals. But this is really interesting in that they're going to take a tiny capsule of the um, the seed of one of the gastrolobium plants and they're going to whack it with a special polymer coat and then stick it underneath the skin of rewilded native animals, similar to the way we'd put a microchip in, where it will lay dormant unless they are killed by a predator such as a cat, in which case the cat will ingest a little bit of the... The, uh, the 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 uh, plant that it would not normally eat, and then it will be uh, uh, it will will no longer be able to prey on any others. Um, I, I I I I it's one of the things trying to control feral cats and techniques like this sort of lateral thinking ways that we might do it. Um, I, I think that uh, that that it's a a real area for. Uh, exploration and research and I'll be very interested to see how it goes Brendan because it's no doubt when the cats are taken away these animals thrive it's it's a pretty amazing little system that um, that um, will be very interesting to see if it works Mark um, putting that implant in and sitting there like a little time bond so it's Oh, I want to coin a new phrase, Mark. Instead of malware for computers, it's wildware. I'm going to call this. Um, it sits there waiting to um, waiting to be eaten, and um, it explodes and kills that um, predator species. It was the South University of South Australia, Mark. The article yes. is from because it is their project, and I think they have a crowdfunding a crowdfunding um, project for it week. Um, there's a link to it. We'll have the link to the actual article at vetgurus.com and uh, they're trying to get a target of um, $30,000, I think, to, to get the campaign going um, in order to to go the next step with it. But, yeah, it's um, quite a unique method of trying to um, trying to help save Australia's native animals from extinction. And I think your next article um, is, is, is on a... Same similar sort of flavour. But before we do that, Mark, I want to um, relax a bit. And um, no doubt you've heard, or you probably haven't heard of goat yoga. I have not heard of goat yoga. You have not heard of goat yoga. Well, goat yoga, as the name um, explains or or suggests, is um, doing yoga with goats around. Um, The next step, Mark, is you've got to take it the next step (laughs) always, don't you? And that is alpaca yoga. Now, you know, what could be more relaxing, Mark? And this is an article from Good News Network, um, which they have some very interesting articles. And thanks to um, Doug for flicking this one our way. I think it was Doug. Um, And um, this is in the UK um, where you can... Rosebud alpacas have become the first place in Britain to offer you yoga classes in the field of fuzzy alpacas. So you can sort of prance around and, and pose around um, with the alpacas, Mark, and, um, you know, they think it's the way to go, Mark. So, you know, when you're doing your downward dog, um, you can be doing it with with, a, with an alpaca instead of um, um, instead of um, your um, fellow human beings. And they say it's a unique experience, which is great for the mind, body and soul, Mark. And um, the alpacas like to warn off um, um, 
people who are trying to sneak in and, and do the yoga for free. So they're very good, um, very good um, guard alpacas as well. But um, they seem to enjoy the sessions apparently. And um, of course, all their animals, according to the article, are raised ethically with freedom of choice and the welfare being paramount. Mark um, the yoga alpacas, and um, there's some quite. Um, Brendan, what do you think? Do you- Quite um, disturbing photos here. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, um, I don't think I'd be doing the downward dog in front of an alpaca. That's all I'd say, Mark. Um, you know, if if I was going to suggest a pose, Mark, may I suggest a pose that you do with with an alpaca? I'll take it on advisement. There's probably a couple. The, the downward dog is certainly not one to do, and and the, you'd really be risking it if you tried to do the crow. Um, and if you look up the crow, um, I think you'd you'd yeah, you just should not do the crow in front of an alpaca um, because you're just asking for trouble. Um, and it's not good on your wrists as well, um, Mark. The one I'd be using is the corpse. corpse. Mark, have, have you ever done, done the corpse? corpse. Yeah. Is it like well, the corpse yoga pose? It's regarded, and you look it up, Mark. Do do a bit of a search or some chat in here. It's one of the most important postures, Mark, in yoga, Mark, and it, it, it's just lying on your back. That's what it is. You lie on your back, and it rejuvenates your mind and your body just by sitting there. It's almost, it's sort of a meditation, Mark. But that's what the corpse is. It's just literally lying on your back. I call it lying on your back. But if I go to yoga classes, I call it. Let's do the corpse now. <laughs> So if you're in my clinic and we talk about doing the corpse, um, we're not we're not opening up the body freezer, Mark. We're um, we're all having a bit of a Zen moment, and um, we're about to do a bit of yoga, Mark. So, yes. Yeah, so, what do you think of um, alpaca yoga, Mark? I um look, I, I I you can hear me laughing, and I think it is pretty hilarious. But I, I think it, I'm sad about it, Brendan. I'm genuinely sad because it's I think it's a symptom of the disconnect between people who live in the city and the natural world. And um, and they're so desperate for any contact with something that's a bit dirty and green and furry and alive that they, um, they do strange things to make it happen. And I don't think it's normal to do yoga in a paddock with alpacas. Um, I don't think that's a natural combination of things. Even when you're doing the corpse, um, I think... I think yes. you should separate those behaviours. Oh, that's my personal opinion. And I just hope they have insurance there, Mark, because there would be more than one corpse if they're not careful um, in that field, yes. So that's my second story, Mark. What's your Well, very story? along the same themes as my original story, um, I'm going to talk about uh, culling noisy miners. Now, this is a bit of a controversial topic because uh, noisy miners are a native species and so to even talk about um, removing them from a natural area, you know, um, does raise all alarm bells about interfering with our native animals. But um, but there has been a uh, trial, as I understand it, where um, the noisy miners were culled from a particular part of the woodland, the bush, in southern temperate Australia. And um, and uh, and unfortunately, Brendan, the unfortunately the despite the fact that the change grazing the changes to the landscape that grazing has created, um, particularly clearing that understory and allowing noisy miners to defend a much more significant territory and um, with 
clear vision able to drive out other birds from that uh, that little ecosystem. Um, noisy minor aggression has now listed as a key threatening process on, in Australian environmental law, and it applies to many threatened species, not least of which is one of my favourites, the um, uh, the our honey eater, the um, oh the one that's um, breeding up here. The which honey eater is it? Brendan Regent honey eater. And um, and as a consequence, because it is a key threatening uh, process, um, they have removed the noisy miners um, from uh, sites to try and create um, a zone where they aren't; those birds aren't harassing the local birds. But the problem is, Brendan, it actually it actually helps that the noisy miners are not there, and we do get um, uh, an improvement in. Um, the actual uh, number of birds, but it's a very, very temporary thing. Uh, very, very quickly, noisy miners from adjacent territories fill the vacuum. They just move in and create, uh, you know, it's ideal territory for them and they just quickly move in. So um, despite the culling giving a very short um, improvement, um, it uh, it has not been successful, which is unfortunate because those regent honey eaters I was talking about, um, the noisy miners have um, stopped some of the breeding activity of those uh, very, very special birds. And, um, and it would be good if we had some, you know, uh, reason some success in trying to separate those species so the the uh, the regents had more success at breeding but i'm afraid that um the uh the success the the uh, um excellent way in which those uh vigorous noisy miners um uh, can um can repopulate uh, those areas they've been taken from just means that um, it's much more important for us to consider actually changing the landscape rather than trying to manipulate the species in it. We really should restore that understory, which uh, makes it much more difficult for the miners to trouble the other birds. Yes, a bit depressing. Yeah, they they monitored before and after the 12 months of culling and before the culls there was 510 noisy miners across the sites and after the cull there were 512 um, 12 months later so it actually ended up being more than originally because they the vacuum was filled mark yes so yeah um that is depressing. You I do need, need to do, do some yoga. Do you want to hear, well, while we're on the topic of Regent Honey Eaters, I need, I've got a little um, request for all our listeners. Um, very near to my home and a place that I take photographs at, the um, the Hunter Economic Zone, sometimes referred to as HES, has been the only place that those Regent Honey Eaters have bred um, over the last year That's been that's had breeding events recorded. His is a privately owned property and the owner of it is just um, starting to negotiate with um, uh, Chinese interests um, who are interested in putting a coal-powered fire station, a coal-fired power station on the property. Um, and there is uh, at BirdLife Australia, I will provide you with the link, Brendan, we can put it on our website. BirdLife Australia have a, um, a uh, you know, petition. I'd be very keen for people just to um, actively uh, petition our politicians here in New South Wales to prevent such a thing from happening. Um, so we might just um, whack that up a bit later. And and even though we can't help the region hangators with the noisy miners, maybe we can maintain what little habitat they do seem to use and not put a bloody big coal-powered fire station on that. 
I will put that link in, Mark. Send it to me and it will be on the show notes at vetgurus.com shortly and we will also post it on our Facebook and Twitter social media sites as well. Thank you. Um, I think we should jump into our main topic this week, which is a, sort of a back-to-basics one, isn't it, Mark? It, it's, it's, well, it's actually part two of um, feeding see, Feeling Seedy. We did a Feeling Seedy um, as a title of a podcast previously, which was about seed diets with birds, but this is completely different. We're talking about grass seed abscesses in, um, in our pets and um, not just the unusual pets. We'll probably spend a little bit of time about um, talking about dealing with grass seed abscesses in dogs especially and, and potentially cats, but also, yeah, I want to ask you whether you've seen it in any of the unusual pets as well, Mark, so we'll have a little chat about that. So grass seed abscesses, Mark. So do you see many in in We in definitely do see quite dogs? a few in dogs. The interesting thing for us is that um, the the we have grass species here locally who uh, which we would normally expect are likely to cause those problems. But most of the dogs that we do see um, have travelled significantly, but we see it quite regularly. <laughs> yes, do we? Do, we definitely see it in dogs who are inexperienced. I think. I think there's a um, maybe a, you know um, movement, uh, tracking through the paddocks, uh, um, uh, um, a knowledge that uh, local dogs will get um, that limits the chance, and so it's often uh, unfamiliar dogs uh, or dogs that are un- so maybe it's local dogs, but. Um, uh, you know, uh, cattle dogs who would normally not get it, but the, the environment changes, and so there's a flush of particular species, and they shed a lot of um, seed all at once, maybe along the path that that dog's familiar with, and then we get a problem. Um, and uh, so, do you, so do you think those dogs, those dogs learn um, that hey, this area is prone to grass seeds, and I'm getting some of these little seeds stuck in my between my pads and in my feet. No, um, I don't. So they learn to, to run my away theory from is, that and, area. No. This is, like many of my theories, completely, completely unassociated with any evidence. <laughs> my, my theory is that, um, that there are certain um, ways that dogs move that make it more likely. So uh, particular, and, and there's definitely coat issues. Some dogs have... Uh, longer coats um, and um, but I think goofy dogs move in such a way that makes it more likely that they're going to bump into these things or um, I think the svelte um, athletic um, working dogs they uh, have an efficiency of movement that means that they're far less likely to um, you know to bump into these things and have those problems I think it's a I think it's just a nature of the way they move it's like you and I Brendan (laughs) And your spoon yeah, on the dam. So, so I'm prone to getting grass seeds, am I? <laughs> um, and certainly coat coat type, and that um, I think has a, has a part to play with with um, different types of fur and and how fine it is or not, um, um, where the, where those seeds sort of end up sticking to and and then working their way to the to the skin and then um, targeting through the tissues there mark um so and i think that's where it fits in with some of those little poodle type dogs and those fine furred one i, I certainly see it in a fair percentage of those um overall compared with um, the total number of breeds that we see it with dogs um do you do you have a similar similar um feeling yeah, definitely with, um, the young um, and it sort of makes sense the the arrowhead 
the arrow-headed awn, particularly the one we see most commonly is um, uh, kangaroo grass Themida australis, and it's got that little sort of tuft of, um, you know, mil- less than a millimetre long, but there's a little bunch of um, very stiff hairs which... Um, which jags so each time the hair moves a little the the seed moves a little bit those horns jag into the fur initially but then um as they you know can't and doesn't just doesn't back up it just keeps driving forward and the sharp point pierces the skin and particularly if the skin is macerated or if it's folded in a particular way that facilitates entry through the skin um the the uh, grass seed will just um advance through the surface layer of the skin and and get down uh, deeper into the subcutaneous tissue. And as it forms a track, um, that track will uh, carry with it bacteria and you'll end up with infections. So tell me about what species other than dogs that you see it in. I'll (laughs) I'll jump in first if you like, and I've certainly seen a few in rabbits um, um, where where we – I don't know, I'm – thinking as I'm speaking here as usual off the top of my head um, whether there's a breed a breed association with with certain breeds of rabbits so the chinchillas etc are more prone to it I'm not quite sure I'd have to have a little think about that but I certainly have seen grass seeds in 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 rabbits I'm not rarely infrequently certainly but not rarely Um, some other species that um I don't tend to see many grass seeds in, and I suppose it's more a function of that they're not out running around in the backyard, although we do have a few clients that will let them do that. Is um, I don't know whether I've ever seen one in a ferret, Mark, of you. Um, but again, I think that's mainly to do with the fact that they're not sort of um, let out frequently around the backyard unless they've got a nice big outside running enclosure for them. But we certainly see a few in... in um, in rabbits, Mark, um, are there any other species you've seen? Um, um, well, there's only there's only really the two in. that we, besides um, dogs, I can't say I've ever seen one in a cat, um, but um, we definitely see them in uh, rabbits, and as you said, not commonly, but certainly frequent enough that um, it's one of the things that we would look out for. Um, and we have seen them in guinea pigs as well. And I might, once again, completely... Uh, absent of any evidence my theory is that um that it's an exposure thing that um we do put um those animals into circumstances where they come into close contact with grass they often the rabbits i think often hearkening back to my dog theory they often don't move well um and they often the rabbits we see often have those deep folds where um and the very dense uh, fine fur um that um encourages the the horn uh, arrow-headed horn to plough into the skin, um, and the um, and it's often the I don't know about your cases, Brendan, but um, we might get a dog that has a single one. We'll we'll often um, find several just at the point that they're starting to bury burrow into the skin, maybe in a particular grooming case or when they've come back from holidays. But with our um, the rabbits, we'll often find heaps of them. They, they're often, um, you know, they often will have, you know, 20 or 30 of them rather than just the one or two that we'd see with the dogs. Yeah, I, I, I agree. We often, we, they, they run in packs, don't they, in rabbits? And um, by the sound of it, you... Um, you um, see a lot of goofy rabbits as well as goofy it. dogs. Do I, they you? do seem oh, to like roll around. If there is a, a uh, 
<laughs> Mark's goofy, goofy theory. theory. That's gross. Yes. <laughs> so treatment of these, Mark, let's jump into the basics of treatment of these. Um, what's your preferred method of treatment? And and do you uh, chance to cut, the chance to cure, or do you I um, try almost, and treat them first? I probably, it, it definitely is um, the surgeon's bent. I do tend to try and uh, cut them. And the reason I do is that um, I think that... Um, I had a case as a very recent graduate where um, a grass seed, um, the dog had an abscess on its chest. It was a, uh, I think it was a staffy that went out to a farm and um, and obviously had ploughed its big broad chest into um, a bunch of foxtail. And, um, and uh, we were a little, you know, there was infection. We used antibiotics. We were a bit patient. We thought the, the uh, grass seeds would, um, uh, you know, cause... Uh, they would work their way out I was the suggestion that was made to me by yes. my mentor um, and uh, and several of them did but one of them actually and this often happens in that particular area around the, the thoracic inlet worked its way into the dog's chest and uh, ended up causing a, a mediastinal abscess which killed the dog so I tend to be a little bit um, even though I know many animals will as my uh, former boss said, "Work those seeds, uh, work those grass seeds out." Um, there are the individual animals where they can track quite a long way and into very critical places. And the other thing I find is, if I do the surgery early, as soon as I can, I, you know, intuition tells me that it's likely to be um, more proximate to the. You know, the classic one would be the interdigital location where there's a, at that, the, yes. the goofy dog um, uh, get, ends up with a, uh, a grass seed that's penetrated that location because, it, you know, that's its foot. It's where it comes into contact. That's where the fold between the toes are. Um, and, and what I find is that if you leave those things, then, then you might find an abscess at one point along the tract um, that's not very close to where the seed is. I think in the early stages, the tissue, the cellulitis reaction happens around the seed. Uh, but I think after time, that seed actually tracks away from that and um, and you can be trying to lance an abscess and know that there's something there, but it can be some distance away. So I'm an early cutter, Brendan. Good argument, Mark. Good argument. Let me, let me tell you the process I do. <laughs> Very similar, but um, somewhat dissimilar. So um, initially, if there's a sinus there and we have this obviously discharging pus bucket happen in there in that foot, Mark, um, I will splash a little local on it in the consult and I'll have one or two little quick goes with the alligator forceps, Mark, um, and and just sneak those alligator forceps into that little wound. And isn't it magic when you manage there to pull few, out that grass seed? There are a few feelings day, as exhilarating and gratifying. As <laughs> getting a grass seed out of a goofy dog, Yes. Um, yeah, so I try that first, and if that doesn't work, I must admit that there are, depending on how long it may have been going on with that animal, I may commence the antibiotics, Mark, for for three or four days and then book it in for the surgery um, later in that week um, with the 
with the thought that um, we settled down that swell in a little bit. Hopefully it hasn't tracked, as you mentioned, um, further up and uh, it makes that surgery a little bit easier. And luckily enough, I've found that I have a reasonable number of them that are then in for the day several days later for the surgery and we admit them and we anaesthetise them that um, I can do the same with the... I usually do end up, if I fully anaesthetise them, do end up cutting it right open but um, some of them I have another little quick go before then um, and because that swelling started to go down um, and they're often on a bit of pain relief as well or non-steroidals um, it will, will um, be a lot easier to see that seed or, or you may see the tip of that seed once that swelling's gone down and then we can we can grab it so I have a few that I can manage to get um, without going that final step with the surgery after a few days of um, medication with them or the toothpaste technique mark um, with them <laughs> so you know you, you you can't discount the tooth, toothpaste technique with some of these and that's very satisfying when you use the toothpaste technique and a gentle squeeze. and um, um, There's yeah. two things that I'd, I would say about that, Bridget. The first one is that, um, <laughs> that I think it's that, that um, you know, uh, your tactic is not that dissimilar to mine. I don't think if I can't grab it at the first instance, um, I think a couple of days isn't going to allow the grass seed to migrate from the foot to the spinal cord or lungs. So I do think you've got a bit of time up your sleeve. Um, I like the idea of um, decreasing the inflammation. When you do the surgery, though, I, I, um, I, my tip is, and this is from experience, once you turn that flesh into hamburger mints, you're not going to find anything. And so I really like the idea of a very small incision, probably over the, you know, the the point at which the abscess is likely to burst, start there, use lots of um, gauze to daub the um, pus and blood away, give yourself a tiny bit of pressure, have some magnification, and as soon as you remove the cotton swab, examine that area before it oozes with blood and pus again. And you do, as you said, often see the the um, the other, the tail parts of the the trailing parts of the plant, the um, and uh, those bits can you, if you're lucky, you can grab them and, and work it out. Um, so I think just being delicate and and maybe not uh, bludgeoning the area with a, a scalpel as quickly as you know I tend to do for most other surgical things. Um, the other thing I you know I'm uh, we've had our arguments about toothpaste many times, Brendan, and and I would routinely say that I think. Generally speaking, um, squeezing things um, is a bad thing to do, generally. But in this instance, I actually think that um, one of my uh, early mentors, a greyhound vet, uh, for both um, arrow-headed pieces of glass and seed, demonstrated a little bit of a rolling toothpaste technique, which he claimed loosened the side, loosened one side of the track so that the thing could back up a little bit and then would use this sort of pressure on one side, pressure on the other side. And I always used to fully take the piss out of him because I thought he was, um, well, I thought he was wrong. But as usual in this life, I was the one who ended up being wrong. And he what regularly was able to use an adapted toothpaste technique to work those foreign bodies, those arrow-headed shaped foreign bodies out of those locations. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not about to um, disagree with you on that one. I think it's a, a bit of an art, isn't it, trying to decide at what point do you 
do you go with one particular technique with these or do you just jump in there and do the surgery? Now, I think the the frustrating thing, Mark, is that with a fair percentage of these, we, we get in there, especially with those ones where it's been in there for for a length of time and it's potentially been partially dissolved or broken down is that, that we don't um, visualise that grass seed there, Mark. So what's your, what's your method of, of dealing with it? If we've opened it up, we've flushed it out, well, this is what I do, flush it out vigorously, um, cause a bit of trauma in there, um, scrape everything out and I leave it open, Mark, um, and um, various different methods of sort of um, then bandaging it there. Sometimes they use a little poultice, um, you know, we still use the old, and, and I'm sure you've heard of it, the animal intex poultice. Um, I sometimes still use that in these grass seeds. Um, at other times I just use a, a non-stick application of a, of a non-stick product like melanin and um, a big glob of some antibacterial cream like flamazine, something like that on there, and um, which will then change in you know one or two or three days, um, and uh, to help try and draw it out. And it's amazing how how quickly they heal over when you make that incision. Um, if if you've managed to flush things out reasonably well, even if you didn't see a grass seed, um, uh, I think a, a fair percentage of them do, I, do I, very well. I have. I don't think you're drawing them out. I think those um, poultices and uh, the the um, uh, the wound care gels. I think they serve to slow that um, sealing over a little bit, that the wound will stay open and moist for a little bit longer. But I think changing the tension in the tissue um, and re- you know almost a form of release does allow the the um, the track the advancement of the seed to. Um, to get back into that space. And so if you, um, I, I certainly would counsel people not to close them up, but to um, leave them open and try and manage them as an open wound for a bit of an extended time. And it is surprising how often you will get um, the seed then tracking out through that um, that open wound. And they can be they can be nightmare, as you hinted to earlier, Mark, and I can remember very well one. Many years ago, that we um, I attacked it two or three times, and um, it, it kept forming a fistula, um, a little sinus there, and uh, ended up getting referred to the university and um, a specialist surgeon, and they spent um, three or four goes at um, trying to open it up and, and flushing it out, and, and trying to find the foreign body over several months. In the end, it um, ended up being Mark and. Um, they still didn't find anything obvious, and um, after one of those, um, they got more radical. The the, um, the sur- soft tissue surgeries um, it, it finally resolved, um, although nobody ever found any obvious remnants of a grass seed. So they can be can be the, um, tricky little buggers, can't they? And um, I've certainly seen ones where they have tracked um, from from the foot into the into the um, into the body cavity as so well. I was going to say that um, that's that communication thing, isn't it? I think if you do have a client that has one of these, really emphasising that um, that it's not uncommon. There are cases that um, that uh, might take four or five or six debridements before the thing settles down, and and often I suspect when you're doing those final, the fifth or sixth debridement, you're removing some uh, fibrous connective tissue scarring that contains the remnants of the the thing that the body's broken down rather than actually removing the grass seed. But um, but it is important to, you know, there's nothing 
that this is often not a thing that's solved at the very first instance. And there's another thing that I tried once that worked particularly well, and I haven't done it lately, but um, we did get a um, uh, one that um, we, the, I think it was the third go we'd had at, a go at it, and we um, did inject a little bit of... Uh, um, fluorescine into the wound, um, and uh, and it did track up through the tissue, and we could follow it up to um, about an inch away from where the abscess was, and uh, explore that area and find a grass seed. So um, that might well be a, an added little trick to add to the armament, Brendan. So with that, you were injecting the fluorescine and, and what then getting your little UV light and, and yes, and so we don't you know open the tissue and it? and uh, delicately separate it and follow the little track that was highlighted with uh, the um, fluorescent dye. Excellent, good tip, Mark. And um, final, final, um, final thoughts or comments on antibiotic choice for them while we were. Um, treating these um, awaiting or post-surgery mark I just typically reach for one of the reasonably broad spectrum ones like the um, um, Clavilox um, brand or the um, equivalent um, moxicillin clavulinic acid um, product do you have any well, probably um, you know antibiotics? We, um, we would probably be happy to use the amoxicillin I tend not to use Clavilox unless I you know it, it unless I'm have an amox, uh, uh, what are they, uh, um, beta-lactam resistant. Yeah. Um, I tend to hold off on using yep. those, uh, um, those more complex drugs, just uh, the whole antibiotic resistance thing. I think it's, um, but I think uh, amoxicillin is probably the first one we go for. I try not to use um, Convenia or those, uh, those other um, uh, syphilis, particularly um, uh, giving an injection that lasts for a few weeks, that's going to be problematic. But um, a short course of amoxil is a, a perfectly fine thing to do, I think, Brendan. Excellent. Well, those pesky little grass seeds, Mark, but um, I think we needed to certainly discuss our methods of dealing with them um, and um, the difficulties of, of them because I'm sure all the new graduates will be seeing plenty of grass seeds um, during their career um, regardless of whether they end up in exotic pets medicine or zoo work. I mean, I, I, we used to see a few in, in um, with the zoo animals, Mark. Obviously, those animals are sort of semi-free range in the enclosures there, um, so we'd see some grass seeds in there. So, although I cannot remember it, I, I'd, I'd expect it's related to the anatomy of the, of the species involved. I, I cannot for the life of me remember any um, grass seed abscesses or issues in the fate of macropods of our kangaroo species and wallaby species. But when you look at the structure of those um, and the skin and the, those sort of calluses and those um, foot pads they have, I, I think the grass seeds would struggle. Um, to to work the way in um, through the legs of those species. Um, have you seen any? I know we touched on some rabbits and, and guinea pigs. Are there any others you can recall now that you've seen um, grass seeds in any other no, species at all, or not really? Have, have you seen any no, grass I haven't. seeds in I birds? I tell you that I have seen some grass seeds in birds, and and it probably you know f I think there has to be um, uh, the preparatory step that the grass seed is. Uh, oriented in the fur in an arrangement that, you know, sets it up um, um, ready to pass through the skin. Um, and that's why those dogs that have 
long fur between their toes, um, they're a little bit more likely to get that. But I think the nature of feathers makes that setup process exceedingly unlikely. Well, I think we've covered um, CD, CD grass, CDs completely, haven't we, Mike? <laughs> um, well, the completers we're going to today. And um, we finished almost... Um, our usual one hour on time here um, with a couple of little edits there because my internet went out, although our, our listeners will not realise that. And uh, please visit us at vetgurus.com and um, send us some emails. We have had a couple of extra emails. We've been requesting some comments and some thoughts on potential topics, so keep those coming, vetgurus at gmail.com or just visit vetgurus.com and we'll talk to you all next week if all goes to plan. For listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.